If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 7. We won't do the whole chapter, just most of it. Verses 1 through 53. So, Acts chapter 7. If you remember the context, uh, right at this point, uh, Stephen had been ministering, he'd been preaching boldly, uh, and he'd been falsely accused by false witnesses. And the following is the speech, or the sermon, I, I, I prefer sermon, that he gives. We've already looked at Peter's sermon a few weeks ago, and of course it is much better than anything I could ever give. Uh, and the one today is just that way. However, I want us to look at some of the different elements, look at some of the different threads, uh, and to see where he's pointing. And essentially what he's pointing people towards is trust in Christ. Your parents, your fathers, oftentimes did not. When God would send a helper, they did not listen, they did not trust. Don't make the same mistake. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 53. This is the word of the Lord. Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham, while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, Your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because, of the patri- because the patriarchs were je- jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers, there was, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Israel, Egypt, I'm sorry, He sent our fathers on their first visit. On the second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, and he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in a tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born. He was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was not using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men! 
You are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. And this is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be the ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is what Moses, this is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of heavenly bodies. This agrees with what has been written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of the god Repham, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacles, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them They took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for God, for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Moreover, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will be my resting place? Has not my hand made all of these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed the one who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it endures forever. I pray that you would open our eyes to understand it. Father, I pray that you would get me out of the way and that the words that are preached uh, would be guided by your spirit. Transform our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I encourage you, please do keep your text open as we go through it. Because it's such a long passage, we'll be jumping around. But we'll also be looking back to the Old Testament as well. So if you're able to look with me, uh, it'll make much more sense of the jumble that I say up here. When I was in high school, uh, we just moved back to the United States. And I was invited to my first party. Uh, I showed up and there were people dancing inside. And I'm not much of a dancer, so I went outside. Uh, And there was just a group of people uh, standing outside. 
Uh, I, they were just talking, and I started talking with them, and after about five minutes, uh, one of them pulled out some weed and offered it to all of us, myself included. When they offered it to me, I said no, mostly because I was afraid of making a fool of myself. I had no idea what I was doing. But later that day, my dad was taking me back home, and I told him, I don't know why I told him, but I told him, that it just, just that it had been offered to me, and my dad apologized to me, and he said, don't make the same mistakes I did. See, my dad, uh, pot was just the beginning, uh, he made lots of mistakes regarding drugs, dropped out of college, uh, and lived doing whatever he wanted for about 10 years. And as a result, growing up, we really didn't have a whole lot of money. Uh, he, was, he would work odd jobs as he was going to school so that we could go back to seminary. And, and I knew this, and he told me, John, a lot of the suffering that you've had to endure as a kid because we didn't have the things we needed was because I made mistakes, this mistake, years ago. And he looked at me and said, please don't make the same mistake I did. He didn't tell me not to do it. He didn't tell me all the dangers of it. He just said, don't make the same mistake I did. And that stuck with me. That worked more than all of the D.A.R.E. projects had before. In this passage, that's exactly what Stephen is doing. He tells the entire story of Israel, and he's looking at these Israelites square in the face, and he's saying, don't make the same mistake Israel has made for generations. Do not reject God's deliverer. You see, because God has remained faithful to His people throughout history, we should not resist the Holy Spirit as we see them doing, but we should trust in Christ. That's the center, that's the core of what we're talking about today. In these early chapters of the book of Acts, the church is expanding and growing. The Spirit is using miracles, is using persecution, and even church discipline, as we saw, for opportunities for the two things that happen when the Spirit of God is moving. The preaching of the Word and the service of the church. And thus, the church is growing. Stephen, just in the last chapter, was charged as a false witness. He was ministering and he was teaching, but false witnesses came. We see that in 6.13. And they charged him with blasphemy against Moses and against God, which were capital offenses. Uh, They say he's spoken against the temple, spoken against the law, said that Jesus would destroy the temple, and that he wants to change the customs of Moses. Essentially, they're saying, this tradition that we've had for generations, he's trying to destroy it. He is apostatizing, is the word. And so a question, a simple question, is asked in verse 1. Is he being unfaithful to the basic tenets of faith? Is he apostatizing? Which Deuteronomy 13 condemns entirely. The question that that Caiaphas probably asked, are these charges true? Is this really what you're doing? And so what Stephen does is he gives a speech in response. He calls them brothers and fathers. He's identifying himself with the people of God. He's showing them respect. And he's showing that this is their story, but it's also his story. And so as he gives, he gives a timeline of what has happened. He's saying, don't make the same mistakes they did. So if you look at your text, if you start out just by looking at verses 2 through 8, first he tells the story of Abraham, and it's a familiar one. It's about how God established a line or a family for his people. And he starts out by describing the God of glory. What's amazing, as he tells the story of Israel, none of these characters are the center of the story, but God himself is. And we see that God is the key to Israel's story. And God has called Abraham to leave his country and to trust God. 
In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we see when he's called. If you want to turn there, you can. This is what happens in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Essentially, God appears to Abraham. The God of glory is the subject. And the verb that that Stephen uses here is literally God is saying, come here to the land I will show you. So it's showing that God is calling Abraham to a locale. The nation, later Israel, would be connected with this land. And so we see in verses 4 through 5 that Abraham obeys, even though he had no land and he had no son. Think about it. The way Stephen describes it here is that Abraham was a sojourner. That means... He didn't own any land. He was a gypsy. He lived in tents. And yet God had promised him a land. Not only so, Abraham had no son and he was too old to have children. And yet this promise is for a nation that will come from him, through him. He had no land, he had no children, and yet God promises him land and a nation. He is summarizing here Genesis 12-18, through but as we read in Hebrews 11... Abraham's faith is commended. What we just read in Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham went to a place where he would later receive an inheritance. By faith he made his home in the promised land as a stranger. He never owned it. By faith, even though he was past the age, he trusted in God. From this one man, though he was as good as dead, came the descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. That's what Hebrews 11 verse 12 says. That's a beautiful promise that God gives them. But if you keep reading, God also gave them a promise of slavery. That they would one day be able to worship Him. If you look at verse 6 of our text today, after wandering, there would be 400 years of slavery. He promises them hardship. A lot of times we cling to God's promises for the good times, for the, the, the children as numerous as the stars in the sky, but when it comes to the troubles, we don't like those. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Consider it pure joy, My brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, not if, when. Do we cling to those promises as well? But what's amazing is, God, along with that promise of suffering, says you will return to the promised land. And what was the purpose of the promised land? It says it here, but it also says it in the book of Exodus. The purpose of the promised land was to worship God. Eight times. Every time Moses appears to Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go that they may Worship me. That's the very core of why they were given a land, was to worship God. And and to be able to worship God, God gives them a sign. Verse 8 talks about the sign of circumcision. This separated, in Genesis chapter 17, this showed who was of the people of God. We talk about how, you know, baptism separates God's people, and it shows that you belong to God. You've You've been separated for God. This was the most intimate reminder of them being part of God's people. That's the story of Abraham that Stephen shows. Then in verse 9 through 19, he tells the story of Joseph, how God is with his people despite difficulties. In verses 9 through 10, we see Joseph being sent into slavery, but then ascending into power. And it's summarizing Genesis 32 through 42. However, there is an exception. Chapters 37 through 42 do describe Joseph, but chapter 38 doesn't talk about Joseph at all. It talks about another guy, one of his brothers, Judah. You see, though at the time, if you remember the story that we just told, though at the time he was enslaved, and it didn't seem like it, 
Here in the text, Stephen tells us God was with him. Even though his brothers had rejected him, God was with him. And so if you look at chapter 37, you see Joseph in slavery. You see terrible things happening to him, but God is with him. Then you go to chapter 38 of Genesis, and you see Judah doing whatever he wants. In fact, he's sleeping with a prostitute. That's what it shows in chapter 38. Not following after God at all doing whatever he wanted. Then you get in chapter 9 of, 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 of Genesis, and again, it, it zooms back over to Joseph, and it shows him going to prison and doing all these other things, but God was with him. And it shows that though Joseph may be in one of the worst straits compared to his brothers, yet God was with him. That was the difference between, there's a contrast through the structure of Genesis. And it shows that his brothers misjudged God's sent Deliverer. You see, God had chosen Joseph. God was going to use Joseph to save the people of Israel, to save Jacob's family. And yet, what did his brothers do to him? They rejected him. They sent him into slavery. But what do we see about God? He's still the subject. He's still the center of the story. He rescues him. He gives him wisdom. He enables him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh. And he becomes the ruler of Egypt. Then we see the famine that brings Canaan to Egypt and the oppression of Egypt. Yet we see God caring for this family that started just with 12 brothers and then grew literally from 75 people to about 2.5 million. And yet God, though through this beautiful story of, of having to go to slavery but then being freed from slavery, yet God is still the subject of the story. Then in verses 20 to 43, we see Moses. And this is the core of what Stephen describes It's how God's law was given to his people to relate to the people. First, in verses 20 to 22, we see the upbringing of Moses. And according to Jewish tradition, Moses' life was kind of given in the 40-year segment. So here's the first 40 years, here's the next 40 years, here's the last 40 years. And that's exactly what Stephen does here. He is so familiar, not just with the teachings of Scripture. I mean, he even tells us how many sons Moses had. I had no idea. But he also is familiar with the Jewish tradition. So he's showing, I've not shown disrespect to the Jewish tradition. I know the word of God. The difference is I understand how Jesus Christ fulfills it. And that's what we see here. It describes how three months, for three months, Moses was raised with his family. But then he received the education of the Egyptians. Now, what does that mean, the education of the Egyptians? For example, when Israel is being, when, when, when Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. What does it say about Pharaoh? It says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Does it not? According to Egyptian tradition, after you died, your heart was placed on a scale. And if your heart was heavy, you were condemned. And if your heart was light, it was considered that you were a good person, so to speak. And you you would have an idea of an afterlife. Heavy heart, bad. Light heart, good. How does Moses describe the sin of Pharaoh. His heart was made heavy. His heart was hardened. Even in the midst of the writing, and we understand it also in another context that he made himself hard, he's still describing, he's even communicating in some senses, showing, using the knowledge that he had received from the Egyptians. And yet, his identity remained with God's people. Again, in Hebrews 11, verses 23 to 26, By faith Moses' parents hid him, but later by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. Stephen here says that he was powerful in speech and action, even though when Moses looked at himself, what is it that he said? No! I'm slow of speech and tongue. God had providentially been preparing him, equipping him 
for letting God's people go. Then the next 40 years, we see Moses as a ruler and as a judge. Now, he describes the Israelites as his own people, showing his identity. However, in verse 25, look at verse 25 carefully with me. It says there, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Here's what's amazing. Throughout the Old Testament and in manuscripts, there's nothing that suggests that Moses, at this time, saw himself as a deliverer of this people. But he was trying to save that one man, that one man who was being beaten by the Egyptians. He wanted to rescue him, yes. And then the two men that are fighting, he wants to help them. And here's what's amazing. When he tries to stop those two men from fighting, what do they say to him? Who made you ruler and judge? If you flip over to verse 35, we're about to see it. He could have answered God. He didn't know it yet. But God had made him to be ruler and judge. And in the same way, Joseph's brothers rejected him. The God's people rejected Moses as the one who was going to free the people of Israel. But then look at verse 34, 30 to 35, when God sends Moses. You see, God appears to Moses, God speaks to Moses, God identifies himself with him, and then God sends Moses as a ruler. This shows us the character of God. In our psalm study, we've been looking carefully and showing what does this teach us about God and what does it teach us about how we should live. Here, we see beautiful things about the character of God. A God who never changes. First of all, it's a God who speaks to us. God speaks to you. In the same way he spoke to Moses. God who is holy. He is perfect. He is set apart. We see that in the burning bush. He said, take your shoes off. We see a God who hears the oppression of his people. But we also see a God who uses messed up people. Realize, Moses was a murderer. And yet God used him to free his people. You may say, God can't use me. I'm too messed up. You don't know my history, John. You don't know the things I've done. I don't. But God does. And he promises to use you. He knows your baggage. He knows my baggage. And I'm standing here. God can. God will use you. And God sends Moses as a deliverer, first delivering them from Egypt, but then also delivering the law of God. What we see in verses 36 to 38, and this is a beautiful section here too, we see not only the Exodus described, but also how Moses promises a prophet and he delivers the law. First of all, the entire Exodus in this passage by Stephen is summarized in one verse, verse 36. It talks about how the, the Exodus, which is the summary of the, is the purpose, the Passover and the basis for the Sabbath. All of those things, it just says God led them out of Egypt. He doesn't give specifics. But how did he do it? Through wonders and signs. This is very important because if we've read, which we have, the book of Acts up until this point, every time a Christian comes to a new town or any time they're about to preach the gospel, they do what? They do miracles, wonders, and signs. God uses these wonders and signs to prove that his word is valid. And we see that throughout the book of Acts up until this point. Three times in the chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. It's proof of the Spirit's work. And so we see there the wonders and signs, but also Moses promised that a prophet would come after him. Notice that. In Deuteronomy 18, this is what it says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them the words that I commanded him. Later in Deuteronomy 34, it talks about how when this man comes, he will be like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. God promised a prophet. And yet, throughout the Israelite history, that prophet never came, and they kept waiting and waiting and waiting. And then he came. You see, in the same way Moses 
uh, was a picture of the prophet that would come. Then when Jesus Christ came, he was the new prophet that fulfilled what Moses could not. In the same way that David was the king who followed after God's own heart, but he failed miserably, then a king would come who would fulfill what he could not. Aaron, he failed miserably, as we've seen here, as, as the priest. And yet the great high priest would come, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus fulfills their mistake. And so Stephen highlights that. And in verse 38, the law of God that's given on Mount Sinai is described as the living word. In Exodus 19, it describes how God come, came down. I don't want you to miss the John 1 connections here. The living word of God. And it says that this law was given. It's the Ten Commandments. But I want to ask you, how many times do you sit down and read Leviticus and think, oh, this is so beautiful, right? We usually don't do that. We get to Leviticus and Numbers and think, oh, this is a list. What are we doing here? And yet, what does Psalm 1 tell us to do? We are to delight in the law of the Lord. Psalm 119, the entire psalm describes how the law of God is beautiful. It was delivered. It's God communicating to his people, God's revelation. And Moses is the mediator of that law. And yet, what do we see? What did Israel do at this time? Look at verse 39 to 43. Your fathers refused to obey God. They rejected him, and then their hearts turned back to Egypt. They turned to idolatry, to the golden calf, to the heavenly bodies. And he cites Amos 5, verses 23 to 27. I'll just read the beginning of it. I hate and I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. There in, in this passage, it describes how they, they send God off, they, they give God offerings, and they come and sing songs to Him, but their hearts are far from Him. My encouragement to you, showing up to church, just singing the songs there on the words of the page is not enough. God sees our hearts. And the same way in the book of Amos, there were warnings. Don't do that. Make sure that you are daily following after Christ. That's exactly what Stephen is pointing to here. And But what, what do we see in the history of the nation of Israel? They reject God. And so God hands them over to their worship. What's really fascinating is who they worship. One of the gods that's described here is Molech, the god of the Ammonites. He was famous because of their child sacrifices. I had a professor at RTS that did an archaeological dig in Carthage. And the, the, the dig, it, it, was, it was similar to, it was, it was a god who, who received child sacrifices. And there was this big bronze god who had uh, his hands turned up, and they would put a fire inside of its stomach. And they would sacrifice their children by placing their children on the idol's hands, and it would slide down into the belly and be burned. And you could hear the child screaming on the inside, and it would echo. He found over 22,000 graves kept in vessels. This is what the people were doing. And not only people in Carthage and in other places, but the people of Israel worshipped Molech, as we see here. Oh, how could somebody do that? Are we that different today? Sacrificing our children? The reason they were doing it was for fertility, oftentimes, because they wanted something. They wanted a commodity more than their own child. And so they worshipped the stars. They worshipped an idol. We, we, oftentimes we think, oh, we're not, we don't worship idols. We don't, we're not silly enough to follow a god of stone. This is what John Piper says about idolatry. It's an act of the heart. It starts in the heart, craving, wanting, enjoying, being satisfied by anything that you treasure more than God. A disordered love or desire more than God, more than what God ought to be loved less uh, than God, and only for the sake of God. Essentially, you are loving something more than God himself. Calvin used to call us idol factories. You see, our sin nature makes us bent to want to make idols, images made in our likeness, so that we don't have to follow God's commands. We can follow our own. We are no different. And God led them over, let them follow after their own desires. 
We see that then. And Stephen gives a warning. The last section here shows the tabernacle. In verses 40 through 50, God dwelling amongst his people. You see, the tabernacle was the presence of God. We see that when they wandered around in the desert, God showed that he was with them because the tabernacle was with them. And then later, the temple was with them. It was a building that stayed still. But what's absolutely amazing, as you read the Psalms, they constantly talk about Zion, and they talk about the temple mount. It was proof that God was with them. But then in 587, that was destroyed. And along with it, their hope, suddenly God wasn't with them. And people didn't know what to do because the temple had been destroyed. Then in the book of Ezra, when they rebuild this temple, what we see is people weeping because they see how tiny this house is in comparison to the greatness of the house before. They were so bound to this place. And so Stephen shows them that, and he says, look, God didn't live in a house. Rather, the, the idea of God's temple was merely a doorway to God's presence. The whole world, Stephen says, uh, he alludes to Psalm 11, the Lord is in his temple, but the Lord is in the heavenly realm. The heavenly throne, I'm sorry, says Psalm 11.4. Or in Isaiah 66, he shows that the, the day will come when the Lord will be worshipped in spirit and in truth. You can't hide God in a building. And he shows them. He points them that specifically. And in the last three verses, he shows the rebellion of God's people. He says that they had uncircumcised hearts and ears. Even though they carried the sign of salvation, their hearts had not changed. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 Moses says, circumcise your hearts and do not be stiff-necked any longer. The exact same thing that Stephen says to them here. But what do we see them do in these last few verses? They resist the Holy Spirit. Throughout the book of Acts, up until this point, anytime somebody was filled with the Spirit, something amazing happened. But then we saw somewhere else where somebody, somebody's heart, Satan filled their heart instead. And so Stephen is showing, please don't do that. But instead they resist the Spirit. What else does he say? They killed those who predicted the coming of Christ, the prophets, and they killed Christ himself. They rejected the deliverer. You see, just like their forefathers had rejected Joseph, and just like their forefathers had rejected Moses, and just like their forefathers had rejected all the prophets that said that Jesus was going to come, now they had rejected Jesus. They did not keep his law like the people before them, like their fathers before them. I'm going to end it there. Because I want us to see, later we're going to see that Stephen is actually killed for these words. And we're going to look at that next week. But right now what I want us to do is just to consider the history of Israel. Learn from it so that we don't make the same mistake. You see, do not the, the core of it is do not reject God's deliverer. God sent you a deliverer. Don't let the things of this world distract you from who he is. Also consider the history of Israel. Learn from it so that you will see God's faithfulness throughout it. God uses broken people to advance his kingdom. And in the way they failed, Christ succeeded. Lastly, consider the history of Israel. Learn from it so that you will better be able to share your faith. Here we see Stephen sharing the faith boldly. And he knows so much about the history of Israel. And he uses that knowledge, but he doesn't depend on it. Rather, he depends on what he knows of who Jesus Christ is. He doesn't pull any punches. So I'd encourage you, look to Christ. Rest in Him. Daily spend time with Him. Through up until this point, anytime someone speaks, people say, what is different about these guys? They're not even educated. And then the answer is consistently, they were with Jesus. They spent time with Jesus. That is what you are called to do. You were not made for yourself. You were not made for your family. You were not made for Clover ARP. You were made for God Himself. And any interaction that we have with each other is entirely dependent 
on resting in Him. He, God, Jesus Christ is God's deliverer from sin. We are made to be with Him now and forevermore. Do not reject the Son. Make sure that that is the absolute priority of your decisions, of what you do, of how you live your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this history of Israel. We thank You uh, that You remained faithful even when Your people remained faithless. God, as we sing this last song, I pray that You would teach us to rest in You. Oftentimes, my response whenever I'm uh, exhorted to look back to Christ is to want to do things or to want to establish habits or to want to uh, make myself a schedule or something like that. But in reality, Christ, I need just my desires to be changed. I need You to shape my heart, change me, and make me more like Jesus Christ. I pray that You would remind us through this week to spend time with Your Son. But also, God, help us to study Your Word carefully to avoid the mistakes of the past, but to also see the wonders of God's salvation and how you used ordinary people's mistakes to bring about redemption. We pray in Jesus Christ. Amen.